Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Georgina Clark's heroine, Lizzie Hardwick, goes undercover in a Drury Lane theatre in her latest 18th century romp, The Corpse Played Dead. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Georgina talks about why she chose a well-born woman fallen on hard times as the brave and determined protagonist for her new historical crime series. But before we get to Georgina, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Georgina's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Georgina. Hello there, Georgina, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. It's great to be with you. Look, you've had a strong academic career before turning to writing fiction, and I wonder what motivated that transition. Was there a once upon a time moment when you thought to yourself, look, I just must write fiction or somehow I won't have completed my life? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? Um Kind of, yeah. I mean, I've always, I've always written. I've always, um, I've always enjoyed words and language. And when I was a child, I invented stories. Um, of course, as a child, I used to do the illustrations as well as you do when you're a child. Um, but I think life and adulthood kind of got in the way of the the, the creative writing. Um, but I suppose there was really a catalyst moment for me, which was um, uh, nearly nine years ago now, about eight and a half years ago. Um, I, I had a I had a son. I gave birth, and I found um, this can sound really strange, but I found I found giving birth a really quite extraordinary creative process. Um, so physical, so visceral, and unlike anything cerebral that I'd done before. Um, and and it really unlocked for me that that sort of creative need and i found myself suddenly full of stories that i wanted to write um and it was really that that got me got me going and obviously you know trying to trying to work and have a, a child um it's not the best time to to start uh, trying to write fiction but i i found that um when my son was in bed at the end of the day, that was the point when I wanted to sit down and 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 be creative. So so yeah, I think I think oddly, giving birth was a fairly major uh, catalyst for me. That's a lovely story. It's got such a romantic depth about it somehow. It's wonderful. <laughs> so you've now published two books in the Lizzie Hardwick series. The first one, Death and the Harlot, and then the most recent one, The Corpse Played Dead. And, and your heroine, Lizzie is yeah. a well-born woman who's forced by circumstance into prostitution. And that's, yeah. that's a very challenging place for a female protagonist to begin. And I wonder, how did Lizzie come about? Not necessarily Lizzie's backstory, but you're deciding about writing Lizzie's story. 
Um, well, I think I I wanted to set the novels in the 18th century, mid 18th century. Um, I've always been interested in that period. It's not it's not the period that I write about academically. I'm a late 19th, early 20th century historian, um, but I've always been fascinated by the 18th century. Um, and I, I wanted a strong female voice. Um, I'm very committed to, um, to trying to uh, allow women's voices to be heard um, in history and in contemporary society. Um, so I wanted a strong female protagonist. Um, and I realised if I was writing crime that um, I wanted somebody who could walk in different levels of society. I wanted someone who could mingle with the well-to-do, uh, certainly with well-to-do men, but also um, who could literally walk the streets and have credibility walking the streets. Um, and I, I very quickly came to the conclusion that um, my protagonist would need to be a prostitute. And I did a little bit of research into um, uh, what I suppose we would call now the sex trade in um, mid 18th century London and found it absolutely fascinating. And it gave me lots of stories and um, some real life um, stories that I've kind of woven in into the fiction. Um, and also just ideas for plots and characters. And I found it really very rich. So that's, that's really how um, Lizzie came about. And I think you have mentioned in an interview that attitudes to prostitution in the mid-1700s in Britain were quite ambiguous. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, yeah, I think, um, well, it's it's the usual story of, of, of double standards, I, I suppose. Um, mm. uh, the idea that... Um, uh, that, that purity, that virginity, that chastity were very highly prized, um, particularly among women in uh, higher levels of society. Um, you know, a woman would would fall out of decent society if she was discovered having an affair, or or um, if she was known to have slept around or slept with slept with people. Um, and, and at the same time, um, you've got um, uh, men visiting prostitutes. I mean, and I think that's, it, as I say, it's that sort of double double standard. So um, I think also it depends on um, uh, there's the double standards about about um, uh, to do with your your class and how rich or how poor you are. So yeah, I think that's probably what, what I mean by by it being ambiguous. Um, the sort of fairly um, well understood idea of of, um, of of double standards. Yeah, yeah, like it was accepted for particularly better, more well off men, but actually men generally yeah. to um, to to you know what is the word go to the go to the brothels, but yeah. The women yeah. who were working in them weren't acceptable, that kind yeah, of feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're, they're, they're sort of deemed necessary, but they're also deemed unworthy, yeah. Mm, mm. I guess as a historian, because we haven't mentioned what your academic qualifications were, but you, you did a degree, I think, in theology and then a yeah. PhD in his, history, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. So I guess historical, or the historical genre was the most um, obvious one for you to 
written. Mm-hmm. And yes. Yeah. Oh. No, go, go ahead because just thinking about your choice of genre and that period, um, what was the real attraction of both? Um, well, I think um, history history is very interesting um in well it's interesting in so many ways i think when we when we engage with history what we're actually engaging with is our own time um we look back to the past to try and find um indicators for for the present i mean the the past is not just a collection of facts um how we arrange those facts when we're writing history tells us what we think about our own society Um, and and I think um, for that reason, history has always, well, for many reasons, but for, for that reason, history has always fascinated me because it tells us a lot about what we think today. Um, I've always, um, I've, I've written in my academic life, I've written uh, about late 19th, early 20th century um, church history, um, particularly religious history. I've always been interested in, in women and women's voices. But the reason I went back to the 18th century, well, I mean, I suppose sort of cheekily, um, I can write about the 18th century without having to worry too much about footnotes. Um, um, I don't have to worry about it professionally. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about, I mean, I do, I do, I do worry about accuracy. I mean, I, I try very hard, even though um, the the, um, the history is quite light. Um, I do try quite hard to make sure that it's properly researched. I would I wouldn't want to have anything in that um, that simply wouldn't have happened in the 1750s. Um, but I can play there. I think that's I think that's why mm-hmm. I'm attracted to it. I can play in the 18th century. Once we start moving into uh, the latter part of the Victorian period or the Edwardian period, I I, I feel a bit more, I I have to be a bit more serious about things. Uh, So I can play in the 18th century. And I, as a a teenager um, at school, we we did uh, the Industrial Revolution in uh, Britain. Um, And I was really quite interested in that period from about the age of, 14 um and in 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 british schools certainly in english schools um you don't tend to do very much uh 18th century history you might do a little bit and that was really that was the only 18th century history i i ever did um and so it seemed like a good opportunity to go back and do a little bit of reading and uh i find it all very fascinating i've been researching wine bottles just recently just to give you some idea (laughs) (laughs) how wine got into bottles in the 18th century (laughs) actually it was interesting you saying about we look back to to really understand ourselves better because robert mckee who's a script guru that you may or may not have come across he has said that um historical whether it's tv or fiction needs to have some relevance or chord that strikes uh, strikes with contemporary readers or viewers to uh, make them appreciate it. What do you think that chord might be in the 1750s? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I, I think... Um who holds power who um who has the loudest who have the loudest voices um i think i mean i think still attitudes to women and and their place and their role in society are quite key um i think the idea that there's one rule for 
the rich and one rule for the poor never quite goes away. Um, and uh, I think we, we're seeing that um, certainly in Britain at the moment um, and uh, seems to be the case over in the United States as well. Um, so I think there are sadly some of those sorts of issues that never really go away. I think how we how we deal with poverty, how we deal with um, people on the fringes of society, those sorts of questions never quite disappear. Um, and I, I think some of those are addressed in uh, certainly in the first of the Lizzie books. And obviously I'm, I'm writing number three at the moment, so that's quite... Um, quite a lot in my mind so uh, yeah those those are the sorts of things I think that we we can we can think about in the past even though we're actually thinking about them in the present it's it's somehow easier to think about them to think about issues in the past it's somehow um we have a we have a greater freedom when we allow ourselves to think uh, about things that happened in the past I think yeah yeah perhaps more perspective yeah yeah Lizzie's backstory, we gradually learn a little bit more of the circumstances that have placed her there as the books progress. But she very much refuses to have a sort of a victim self-pitying attitude. She's very pragmatic. I guess that as a writer, it must be quite a tightrope to walk between being having empathy for her situation but not making her a victim is that what you've been working at yeah I did I really didn't want a victim um and neither did I want um I mean there are there are books there are um stories where um historical abuse historical rape is 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 a kind of um this is what made the character strong and i i really i kind of resent that a little bit um but i needed a reason for her to be in the circumstances she's in um and i think her attitude to what has happened to her is that it is somehow her fault that's how she's been brought up that's what she's been led to believe and that's that's the story that she has told herself it's her own faults um it's her um it's her own her own sort of childish lust that has led her to her uncle and all that happened with him um but it's also given her um her, her new career as it were um and i think i I wanted her to to be pragmatic about it um it also gives her a slightly um it gives her quite an independent streak she's she's not going to rely on a man uh to rescue her um and and she's she's quite determined to sort herself out um yeah yeah. so it was it, it obviously we i mean i would say two things firstly that that um she's an she's a narrator we don't yet know quite how reliable or unreliable her her telling of the story is uh we only have her version of it um uh we might get some more of that later on um and also um 
uh, I can't remember what I was going to say now. There were two things I was going to say, and I forgot what the second <laughs> one is. Uh, isn't that always the case? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, as I say, I didn't, I didn't want her to, to. Oh, yes, that's right. I was going to say that that we, as the readers, uh, hearing her story, we might we might assume that um, what's gone on in her life is abuse because that's how we would understand it today. But that's not how she understands it. Um, and it's not how it would have been understood necessarily at the time. Yes, yes. I, I'm sure you began this with the view that it was going to be a series, did you? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. And have you got an idea of how many books and have you got an overall story arc in your mind for, for what the ending's going to be? <laughs> um, uh, how many books? Well, I can I can tell you that every so often I have conversations with my agent and I terrify her when I say, oh, well, yes, I'm thinking about book seven at the moment. <laughs> um, her eyes widen. Um, I, I mean, I... Um, yeah, I think the, the the richness of the period means that I could have contexts and aspects of 18th century life um, going on for, for a while. Um, and yes, I could tell you that there are um, certainly contexts and ideas swirling around up to sort of book seven <laughs> um although I'm in the throes of writing book three at the moment so I don't want to sort of feel that I'm running before I can walk um yes is there an overall story arc um I would say I would say story arcs um because um yes there's the there's the character of Lizzie there's also uh, William Davenport there are stories around Mrs Farley and some of the other girls in the house um, and and so there are sort of stories, meta stories that that run through um, the books that I would like to to explore. So yeah, um, but yes, I, I I know where the bigger stories are. Yeah, we're all watching, of course, the the relationship between Lizzie and Mister Davenport, the Bow Street Runner, because it's got such fantastic potential there, and obviously that must be a real fun thing to keep yeah. going. I have to say, um, un unresolved sexual tension is definitely great fun to write. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I, I mean, I, I find that whenever, um, whenever he arrives, whenever I'm writing um, the two of them and their, their conversations, I mean, I just write smiling because um, I, I love the two of them together. And what's interesting is that... Um, readers who have who have read the second book as well as the first I mean second book second book does develop their relationship um well it sort of cranks up the sexual tension a little bit um uh the, the, the readers have really responded to to them and um and to their relationship um and I love that because because I love it um and I I, I adore him um he's he's got his flaws which which are coming out in in book three um and he's got his backstory which Lizzie thinks that she knows but she has been told the backstory by a nine-year-old boy so you know actually there's there's more to it um which I'm just um exploring at the moment um and he's got more more depth and um and as I say, he's got he's got his flaws, um, but yeah, I love I love writing them the, the two of them together. <laughs> yeah, they're great. It, it's intriguing to me to hear you say that we've only heard Lizzie's story from from her viewpoint because that introduces also some very interesting possibilities for the future. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. Which I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) How much independence did women enjoy in the 1750s? Um, Well, I mean, again, like a lot of things, it it sort of depended on on who you were and what your circumstances were. Um, And... um, uh, I mean, women women were involved in trade, um, and uh, obviously they weren't in the the, the professions. Um, there were no female um, clergy or lawyers or doctors, and this is the period when um, uh, obstetrics. Um, began to be taken over by men. So even being a midwife was sort of, you know, if you were a female midwife, you were slightly looked down upon because the men were, you know, having ideas about how women should give birth at this period. Um, uh, and so, so women aren't, aren't in politics um, and they're not in, they're not in power, um, but they, there are women in trade um, the big, the big crunch, I think, for for women comes um, with with marriage. Certainly, if you if you have money, if you're um, if you're uh, the daughter of a of a gentleman or a nobleman, the the, the, the big issue is is if you marry because um, legally uh, a woman um, loses her identity at marriage. She becomes part of the man's person. Um, uh, as a, as they are one legal entity um, within within the man, so so you know you lose your you lose your money, uh, you lose possibilities of making money um, at, at that point. So I guess it was women were were more independent if they if they weren't married. But on the other hand, marriage brought security. So yeah. I think that's probably, yeah, that's all I'll say on the subject, I think, yeah. Yes, it's interesting that quite a few historical novelists choose to have their women as widows because that helps to kind of solve the problem of their independence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because then you've got, you've got, um, you've got financial independence, um, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but the, the opportunity to move around, yeah, much more, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you wrote an interesting blog um, entry a while ago uh, trying to ask the question, where are all the women in historical fiction? Mm-hmm. I think it was a few years ago, and I think women are starting to get, get a bit more visibility yeah. in historical fiction. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I, yes, I think so. Um, I mean, one of the one of the writers that I admire is, is Lindsay Davis, who wrote the, um, the Falco uh, novels, and she's now, interestingly, writing the Flavia Alba um, series um so falco's uh, mm. adopted daughter um mm. and um you know there are others as well so i think um there are more um i suppose it's my it's my my question um anyway um always is is um where are the women i mean you you alluded to to my academic um uh, career um i mean that's that's been a, a sort of separate um career i i actually i work for the church of england um i'm a i'm ordained as a, as a priest in the church of england so um my question is always when i look into uh, bible stories or when i look into the history of the church and again my historical work has been mostly religious um uh, church history. I, I'm always asking, where are the women and what are they doing? Um, 
because because history and certainly the history of the church um, is often told about the men, um, by the men, about the men. And and I think with um, with historical novels, um, you know, here is an opportunity for the women to to speak and to and to shine. So so let's let's hear the voices. Let's tell the stories from their perspective because we can use our imagination and we can we can play and we can give them a voice. Um, so I think I think that's why I'm, I I always ask the question where where are the women? What are the women doing? Yes, yeah, that actually leads very nicely into the the question of moving a little bit away from your books, the, the individual books, and talking a little bit more widely about your career. Um, your How has your academic career fed into your fictional writing? Have you found that it's been helpful to you? Um, in terms of the research, absolutely. Um, and in terms of being able to um, handle lots and lots of words, um, also, that's that's helpful. I mean, I'm I'm not afraid of a hundred thousand words, um, for example, um, because my doctoral thesis was a hundred thousand words with footnotes as well, and um, uh, so so I'm not I'm not afraid of lots of words. I'm not afraid of chopping words or editing, um, and I'm not afraid of um, I'm not afraid of research, um, and I think. I think some people are, um, and absolutely, if it's not if it's not something that you're used to, um, then it can be really quite daunting. Uh, you know, where do I start to look for um, ideas, or where do I start to research on this subject? So, if you're not used to um, operating with uh, asking those questions, um, then then I think. Um, it, it might be more daunting for you than it is for me. Um, and I'm aware that that is something that's, um, that's a really great gift to myself, I think, um, from the, from the, um, the academic me to the novelist me is, is not to be afraid of libraries, of chasing down uh, references, of, of asking the questions, is this true? You know, just because I've seen it on Wikipedia doesn't mean it's true. Um, where do I find the real information? <laughs> Who has yeah. written on this subject? Where can I, where can I read it? Um, uh, looking at old newspaper documents, um, uh, you know that kind of thing. It doesn't it doesn't phase me at all. And that's in fact I I, I have to stop myself doing the research sometimes and actually get on with the writing. Yeah, I guess that having been a, an academic as well, possibly you don't have the problem with the idea of writer's block. That you a bit like journalists that professionally you're used to sitting down and just writing. Would that be right? Yeah, that's true, um, and and so also with the with the church work as well. You know, I I have a I have a sermon to preach on Sunday, and um, Sunday will arrive. Um, so there needs to be <laughs> there needs to be some thought and some words uh, by Sunday, um, and that you, you you can't. I mean, you can you can turn in a bad effort, but you can't turn in no effort. You just have to get on with it. And I think um, there are a couple of other um, things that I write. Four. Um, I've done some done some teaching recently, and you know you just have to you have to turn up. Um, so I don't. Um, 
I mean, writer's block, I, I kind of understand it when you, you, you can't work out where you're going in a, a story, um, can't work out where the plot is moving or how you're going to get from point A to point B. Um, uh, normally, I just go for a walk or <laughs> write something else and something will turn up. Um, uh, but yeah, if you, if you have to write, you just you just get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. So if there was one thing that you'd done more than any other in terms of your fiction career, what would be the secret of your success? Secret of my success? Well, I, I love that. I love the idea that <laughs> I love the idea that it's <laughs> success. I think I think if, if publishing the two books is a success, then yeah, I guess it is. Um I think um I think it would be having have have humility i think um would would be would be my advice and 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 um learn from people who have things to tell you um so i would say um i'm i'm blessed with a, a fantastic um literary agent laura mcdougall at united agents um who has a background in editing and she's just brilliant you know she she will look over my my uh, uh work and she'll just ask some very straightforward questions or she'll she'll say i'm not sure this works and i i think having um having the trust in 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 somebody like that is really important so um and being able to learn from it um you know you can always learn i think some writers think that um, well, I get the impression anyway that some writers think that what they have written is just so perfect and they can't possibly change it. Um, uh, and yet uh, a fresh pair of eyes saying, mm, this isn't working, this character isn't working, I'm not sure what this is saying, did you really mean this? Um, you know, that's that's really important. So so learning from people who have something to tell you is, is important. That's fantastic. Look, talk, turning to Georgina as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading and we focus too on the binge reading aspect, perhaps the <laughs> books that um, you like to read for escape and relaxation. Are you a binge reader and who do you like to binge read? Um, who do I binge read? I Well, I've mentioned Lindsay Davis in the Falco book. Yes, um, yes. Uh, I think as um, as a teenager, I I I read all of um, Alice Peters' um, Brother Cadfile novels. I think I binged, oh, yes. binged all yeah. of those. Um, and I will go back to um, uh, somebody writing in the early part of the 18th century, Antonia Hodgson's um, Tom Hawkins novels, so The Devil in the Marshall Sea, um, I, I really love. Um, and I've read those those. Um, Georgette Hare, I think, is my comfort reading. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I think the other thing I would say is that um, because because I am, am writing, I do I do obviously I still read because I love reading. Um, but I think I probably read a bit less now. And when I'm when I have time to sit, I'm more likely to be sitting writing than sitting reading. But I've discovered audiobooks. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, when you've got housework to do or a long drive to do or uh, a pile of ironing, um, then audiobooks have been my friend. So I have consumed novels recently, um, by ear, which has been a great, great joy. 
Um, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of binge, yes, binge listening as rather than binge reading, I suppose. Um, but you're still getting the whole book. Yeah. That's right. If you've got a long drive, it's quite quite a delight, isn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Circling back, looking over your writing life, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all again, would you take exactly the same process or would you make any changes? Do you know, I think I probably would make the same mistakes again um, uh, um, because you, you learn so much from your mistakes. I have... Um, like a lot of writers, I have, I have the novel in the drawer that is never going to see the light of day. <laughs> um, I mentioned it to my agent just recently and she said, oh, send it to me. And I, I said, well, I'll have a look at it first. And I, I opened up the file and, and looked at it and thought, oh, no, this is so terrible. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> um, Tell us about it. What was it? Another historical, or it, it's kind of uh, oh gosh, it's a bit too complicated, really. It's and I think that's part of the problem. It's it's um it's a three it's it's a narrative told from three points of view, and it's um three periods of history. So uh, there's a late nineteenth century, um, a mid twentieth century, and a late twentieth century character. And it's uh -huh. a, um, so it's a triple timeline, not, not a timeline, dual. <laughs> and it's three women connected by a piece of jewellery, um, and it's about family, and it's about love, and it's about betrayal, and it's rubbish. Um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds great as I'm telling you. It sounds like it's got. Yes, it does sound great. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you know when I'm retired, I'll just you know dust it off and see if I can make something of it. But um, I think what I learned, I learned a lot from it though, and I think I think that's the important thing is that I would probably happily make the same mistake again um, because this thing will never see the light of day. I kind of cut my teeth on it, and having having written a lot of serious history. Uh, words. Um, I mean, writing writing fiction is very different, um, and I had to learn how to how to do that. I mean, you you know, you, there are different sorts of mm -hmm. ways of communicating, and um, when when you're when you're teaching, you write differently or you speak differently from when you're lecturing, and when you're writing um, serious academic work, it's a very different uh, discipline from when you're writing a piece for a newspaper or an article um and and fiction is different again and it's it's like learning a new language or a new way of speaking um finding a different voice um so i think i would need to make the same mistakes again uh, so i don't think i'd change anything i might do it all 10 years earlier but um you know <laughs> would be nice but but actually i think even that you know i'm in the right place in the right space in my life to to be writing now so I doubt I'd change anything at all yeah 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 how long did you actually spend on that first book on the what sorry on the first book how long did you take to write <laughs> the one that? that's never going to see the light of day um, <laughs> yeah oh goodness me a couple of years I think yeah yeah. There's somebody, I can't remember who, but someone's got a theory that, you know, you really need to read, to write about 500,000 words or something before you really start to find yourself as a writer. So that was probably your, your equivalent of trainer wheels. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have to, yeah, you have to work out how, 
how how fiction sounds. You know, you read read all these books through your life, and you think, oh, I can write a novel. Like lots of people think, oh, I can write a novel. Um, and um, you know, you might have a story, but having a story and writing a novel are two different things. Um, and you have to learn you have to learn how to how to do it. Um, yeah, mm. it's not yeah. something. That, I think it's I don't think it's something that comes easily to anybody. Um, and even if it does, there is there are always things that you can learn. Yeah. You know, one of my favourite books from many, many years ago is Lawrence Durrell's The Alexandria Quartet. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, four books told by from the viewpoint of four different people. If you, if you've got someone of his stature, then your story idea would probably be very easy to work with and maybe in another decade you'll have the skills to be able to go back to it and do it in a completely different sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I opened it up and looked at it, I I thought, well, I would probably just set it set it to one side and and keep the same stories, but write it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I haven't got the time to do that at yeah. the moment. So. <laughs> so, are you trying to produce one of the Lizzie books a year? Is that your goal? Um, well, well, two 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 out this year. I don't think I'm going to quite make two next year, but I I would like to get the third one out. Um, I mean, the good thing about working with Canelo is that they're able to uh, to produce it quite quickly. Yes. Uh, once it's done, it's done. Um, uh, so I would hope to get a third one out in the the springtime of next year. Um, I don't think I'll make the fourth quite by like I did this year um, by by the autumn, um, I think I'd like a little bit more time. It did feel um, it did feel quite a hurry um, this year, but um, but yeah, I mean, what, I mean, I think with with crime fiction, as I understand it, um, one a year is about standard if you're writing you know, genre fiction. Mm, so that's right, um, and that does bring us beautifully to the penultimate question that I like to uh-huh. ask. And that is, what is next for Georgina, the writer? your projects that you've got say in the works for the next 12 months has that third book got a title yet um the working title is viper in the nest um uh so yeah i i would um i would hope to get uh that well i I mean i will get that i'm going to be positive i will get that written and i will get it sorted um and then um i mean i think there are there are issues in book three that tip into book four and um i think of 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 all the books that i've got in in my in my mind i think book three is the most kind of cliffhangery at the end um as i'm as i'm thinking about how it's going to end Mm -hmm. um it's the most of a cliffhanger so I think people will want book four (laughs) fairly soon after book three so I know that I'm going to have to I'm sort of I'm not quite writing them together but I'm writing three and this is one of the things that's sort of uh sticking for me a little bit at the moment is I'm writing three with a beautiful um and I I'm sort of trying to keep them reasonably standalone but I I think three and four will kind of operate together yes yeah, and that probably will make it easier to write four when you get to it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, four is the one that I want to write. That's the that's the problem because you know uh, sort of significant developments in in Lizzie's life in in book four, and I know what they are, and I want to write them. Um, and uh, but I but I I I need to book write three first. <laughs> you have to get her there. Yes. Yeah. 
Now, do you like interacting with your readers? And if so, where can they find you, online or, or anywhere else? I love interacting with readers. This has been a great joy to me, a real joy, um, is is finding people who, who love Lizzie almost as much as I do. Um, in fact, in some cases, I think even more than I do. Um, and that's been that's been lovely. Um, uh, and people, yes, I'm always happy to, uh, as you can probably tell from the chat that we're having, I'm I'm a, a, I'm a chatty person, so I like to chat. Um, well, people can either they can find out details about me and about the books on my website, which is georgianaclarkauthor.com. Um, but if I'm playing, I play on Twitter, so come and oh, find me on Twitter. Eh? Yeah, um, and I, oh. I, I will, I will play on Twitter happily. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Okay, that's wonderful, Georgina. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. It's wonderful to have been able to talk, and um, we'll be looking for the future books and these developments in Lizzie's life with a great deal of interest. Great, that's been it's been really good to talk to you, Jenny. I can't believe that I'm talking to you on the other side of the world. It's fantastic. Um, I know it's amazing. <laughs> I've got a day of writing ahead of me um, and I'm going off to the library because uh, that's where I like to work and uh, it's pouring with rain and I'm just wondering whether I need to put some better shoes on before I go. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Look, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.